0: DIY 20 at checkout to save 20%. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there head to brooksrunning.com to learn more
1: okay i'm building a versatile champion how do i build this versatile champion you know it's no different than how do you build a house you don't put you don't start putting a roof on the house before you lay a foundation
0: do you have trouble physically making it through long hunts is your dog always giving you that angry look telling you to keep up you train your dog but now it's time to train yourself rocky mountain hunt strong is the company for any hunter that is looking for an effective fitness routine to get healthier and be able to hunt longer and harder this company has merged fitness and the passion of hunting to help people like you and me continue to do what we love From the Rockies to the Smokies and every field or prairie in between, this company can get you ready to go longer, cover more ground, and recover quicker. Go to RockyMountainHuntStrong.com and see their program for yourself. Use the discount code GDIY to save 15% and get to work. Train harder, hunt stronger, and recover faster. All right, congratulations. You guys made it to another week of GDIY. Very nice. (laughs) Everything going on in this world today is, you know, everything that's small. It's a big accomplishment nowadays. That's right. Trophies. Let's give everyone trophies just for listening (laughs) to another episode. (laughs) Yeah. Here's your trophy. You get to listen to us sit down and talk with uh, Scott Caldwell of Rusty Gun Kennels. He swung by the house and uh, we had a big, uh, nice meal, grilled out some deer burgers and drank a lot and talked dogs. And by the end of it, you can probably tell by our energy level, it's they've been drinking for a while (laughs) yeah when i showed up i'm like all right nick where's your beer
2: and scott's like no no no, try this bird dog jalapeno honey like jalapeno honey whiskey that's weird (laughs) but yeah they're good so yeah yeah, i think i I was getting probably sleepy towards the end but i tell you what man i always enjoy talking to scott uh he's i think everyone probably knows scott at this point because he's been on uh quite a few podcasts uh been on with us too but he's a good trainer you know he's a navda judge he does the german testing as we talked about in the last episode
0: with him um he's just really knowledgeable down to earth yeah he's, he's just a, a, he's just a fun dude to yeah. sit there and talk dogs with i mean yep. it, it's this you know picture your best buddy that you're on a you know on a hunt and at the tailgate talking dogs for hours on end he, he, he's kind of the same mentality as your best friend just talking dogs and And you you guys pretty much
2: did like a seven hour podcast because you talked for three hours before i got there and (laughs) talked some more when i got there did a podcast and then the next day you're like yeah man yeah me and scott were up till two in the morning talking about dogs
0: (laughs) pretty much but yeah, so I mean, it. this is a, a really fun episode. We cover a lot of ground. There There was not what, just one subject on this. I mean, we cover everything from, you know, certain level puppy intros to e-collar work to a bunch of force fetch to just being humble and, and having humility when training dogs and learning from other people. And, and, and it's just a fun conversation with a buddy talking dogs for, for a long while. Yeah, and we recorded out on your uh, back deck yep. at
2: night. It was you know nice night you guys might hear an airplane in the background maybe not but uh it was nice you know hopefully you get the feeling that you're just kind of part of the conversation on the back deck hanging out with some friends
0: absolutely and there towards the end we touch on the what we announced a few weeks ago the little training camp whatever we're going to call it eventually we have more details on that so be sure to stick around and and hear that out but uh yeah it's a longer episode so we're we're not going to you know try and hammer this intro out too much longer but we do have to get to something important for you adam okay let's do it the life advice with adam let's see if i have any advice today and i'm letting you know right now this question is here's some advice give us a dollar on patreon You know cut in with that hey that that works, but yeah patreon.com forward slash gun dog at yourself there you go. check it out Now for the real advice yeah, uh, this one it, I'm going to get halfway through this, and you're going to be like, "What the heck is he talking about because this is a question for me, a listener didn't do it, and you know you're going to kind of get get a window into how my brain works I don't <laughs> okay. know I don't know if uh, you've been paying attention over the past week or two, but uh, a certain famous hunter got disarmed. Elmer Fudd. Did you hear about that? Yeah, I might have seen a thing or two on social media. (laughs) Yeah. So apparently Elmer Fudd was disarmed. Yeah. And my mind just gets curious about some stuff. And so I kind of went down a rabbit hole and <laughs> <laughs>
2: there you go yeah. play on words yep. and, and did a little elmer bit fudd of research rabbit hole a- and
0: yep. this isn't this isn't a political type thing you know i don't think anybody listens to gdiy for nick's political viewpoints or anything like that this is this eventually we'll get to a question for you as far as hunting okay so okay i just went digging i pulled up wikipedia trying to figure out some history on elmer fudd good source yeah 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 mm-hmm. so i figured out Elmer Fudd first appeared in 1937, okay. so it's it's been a hot minute since he appeared, all right? I'm already shaking my head at how your brain works. <laughs> so, I mean, dude, it's like 80, 90 years, and over the years, he's had a ton of different changes and re, you know reiterations and stuff like that. He went from just being your normal hunter with a speech impediment that nobody could understand, and he came across as an idiot and stuff like that, to... Then he turned into a photographer for a little while, claiming that he loved all wabbits, but not Okay. But not little gray wabbits. Okay. All right. And then eventually he even became a vegetarian and only hunted for the sport of it, is what he claimed. Gotcha. So I went digging because my brain asked the stupid question, has Elmer Fudd ever had a hunting dog? Mm. So when they took his gun away, I'm like but did he ever have a dog? Just when I thought, you know what? People are going to start
2: hitting the 30-second skip button. <laughs> you brought it back to dogs. Yeah. All yeah. right. So it was
0: kind of a fun little question. Then it turned into serious as I went digging and stuff. So <laughs> yeah. I found out over the years, there's only been two episodes that Elmer Fudd had a gun dog. Okay? Okay. All right. One isn't really worth mentioning. It was a duck hunting episode, but you know he just showed up, didn't really have any big piece of it. But he did have... In 1959, the name of it was A Mutt in a Rut. All right. And he had a dog. And the dog, after watching t- dogs on television, got upset with how Elmer was treating him. And the entire episode is him trying to get revenge on Elmer while hunting because Elmer forced him to hunt. Gotcha. All right. So that kind of shows over the years, the you know, just how many different reiterations we had of Elmer Fudd and just him looking like a buffoon to, you know, being evil because he just wants to hunt for sport to he's killing rabbits based on the color of the rabbit, just dumb stuff like that. Okay. And it it was kind of fascinating to me because of just a stupid question that I was curious about. It kind of turned in, I'm like, man, I thought over here recently, like in the past 10 or 20 years is when hunters really started getting quote-unquote, targeted by media, cartoons, movies, so on, so forth. But this has been going on since the 30s. Yep. And it got me, I mean, everything, it's not just Elmer Fudd. It's not just Looney Tunes. It's Disney. I mean, you have the crazy redneck hunter from Fox and the Hound. Yep. You have the crazy, ridiculous, albeit hilarious, hunter, bad guy in Beauty and the Beast. Yep. And then you have the crazy guy with a shotgun in the Wedding Crashers hunting quail, and That's they're right. directly belittling the tradition of bird hunting. Yep, and in um, that whole scene, while well, it's still funny, it's hilarious. Yeah, it's but, yeah, but it got me thinking. You know, it's I, I'm not the type of guy that I'm not gonna just turn off a movie or not let kids watch a movie because I don't agree with the message. But it is kind of surprising that. You're talking about Fox and the Hounds was the 80s. Beauty and the Beast was the 90s. Yeah. Wedding Crasher was the early 2000s. You got Bambi
2: in there somewhere too.
0: Yeah. You know, Evil Hunter kills Bambi's mom and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. And Bambi, I think they just kill the whole forest and like burn it down. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, really everything that we hear about hunters has been going on since the 30s with Elmer Fudd. And so I was like, all right, here's my question to you, Adam. I need your wisdom on this. Okay, (laughs) I've been waiting for this question. Hunters apparently have been fighting the stigma and being quote-unquote targeted for decades and multiple generations at this point. How would you advise everybody to reflect the hunting community in the best light possible and being ethical and showing future generations and you know the anti-hunters who we really are and we're not just a bumbling idiot that deserves to get a shot shotgun taken away on a cartoon yeah i think uh to
2: start off there's we get a we get kind of a a bad rap as hunters people think we're just what you just described like a bunch of rednecks with shotguns just (laughs) rednecks, yeah (laughs) just burning down the whole forest you know um but and I'm preaching to the choir on this because anyone that listens to this podcast is like, yes, conservation. You know, yeah. like hunters are are known to be really good conservationists. You know, me and my son built wood duck boxes so that there can be more wood ducks. Mm-hmm. Well, there's some self interest. We want to be able to shoot more wood ducks, so we make wood duck boxes. But we're also helping a species, right? Yeah. Um. So there's part of it is doing something like that with. With the youth, like showing my, both of my kids, all right, here's the dimensions a wood duck box needs to be. We got to cut some slats on the inside or put some, uh, some rabbit wire on the inside so little chicks can climb out. Like it kind of lights a fire in them for the, the edu- education piece on that species. They're like, oh, cool. I understand this more. So that paints a positive light to the youth doing something like that, uh, to help, a species. My son looks at it as a person from the perspective of like, cool, we're making more ducks to shoot. <laughs> My daughter looks at it as like, oh, great. The little babies are going to be able to climb out and live a good life. Because the difference we- between a boy and a girl. <laughs> right. So I think that's uh, a good way to, to paint it for our youth is get them involved doing something like we talk about it a lot. There's a lot of people listen to this right now. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the youth involved. But I'll challenge everyone with like what have you done to involve youth, you know, yeah. and I'll leave it at that. Uh as far as the rest of the general public on how do we paint ourselves in a good light? It's showing just like with the kids, we're showing respect for the animal by doing something to help the species, uh even though there's some self-interest in being able to have more of them to hunt. Yep. Yeah. And we actually enjoy watching that whole process of the animal like you and i were talking about pigeons before this and like really getting pigeons to flourish and all that you find yourself kind of interested in pigeons not just for the <laughs> sake of dog training but for the sake of like just the animal that this they is are cool yeah. yeah yeah i've started really appreciating all the different colors and just how they thrive
0: and all that stuff uh so that's really neat but well let me ask you yeah from, from a father's perspective, because mm-hmm. I'm not there. And I know we kind of did that last week on a yeah, father's right. perspective. But, hey, it, it was just Father's Day. So fig- <laughs> forgive me for two weeks in a row. When you're dealing with so much cultural, I don't know if animosity is mm-hmm. the correct word, but direction towards highlighting hunters in a negative light, when you're talking about just Disney movies mm-hmm. or Looney Tunes or just main, mainstream, you know, culture.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Do you ever, like, when you're watching a movie and you see just a bumbling fool with a shotgun, you know, on there, do you ever take the time and say, it's okay to laugh at this, but that's not what hunters
2: really are? So I never really, like, you know, pause the movie and I'm like, hey, that's not who hunters really are because actions speak louder than words and my kids see through the way that we handle animals and stuff like that and, like you know they see that right yeah um so that they know that when they're watching a movie and they see some silly like if we put Bambi on we should just put Bambi on after this and see what my kids say <laughs> but I have a feeling they'd be like this is not true this is so wrong yeah um but my kids appreciate the animals like my son shot a deer last year and was like dad like as we went up to the dead deer my son's like dad we should say a little prayer and I'm like Okay, sure, man. Let's say a prayer, you know. Yep. So, um, so there's that. Like, how how you raise them and your
0: example, I think, is the most important. But, uh, but what's a shame is hunters numbers are declining You right. have less and less hunters in general and so they're raising up the next generation to where the kids maybe not they don't get that example and so yeah is that your job As like if connor brings a buddy over and he wants to go train dogs or something with yeah. you you just you be sure to show them in the direct yeah. light or yep. is it even acceptable if they're having a sleepover or something and you turn on one of those movies and you see that you just kind of you you say (laughs) it to where you're speaking to your kid but maybe the other kid overhears it or something i'm really speaking to speaking
2: to the other kid no that's a good idea i mean it can't hurt right um just the the message to the general public i think is some of the things we do or don't do as hunters like no one sees me going out into a swamp with my son and putting a wood duck box into a swamp yeah no one sees that unless you you know Um, post it on social media right insta famous um So there's that. There's one way to do it. Put it on social media that you're actually doing something. The other thing is, like, uh, you stop at a gas station, you know, and people can kind of see you as, like, yep, you're a hunter because you've got orange on, you've got a dog in the back. There are a group of people out there that are just looking for you to do something that's, like, mistreating your dog or mistreating an animal. So I try not to have dead game and plain view to, like, to make it seem like I'm showing it off because yeah. some people are going to be offended by it. And I just, I don't need to show it off. Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't want the, I don't want the wrong person to get the wrong idea yeah, about it. So things like that. Um, I always make sure that I'm like, I love on my dog a little bit in public, you know? <laughs> so they're like, Oh, there's a hunter that yep. loves his dog and it's not anything fake, you yep. know, but I've, I've had people come over and ask me before
0: you hunt with your dog. Like, Yes, yes, absolutely. I <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of just being asked that question. That's kind of what really got my mind working on this question. Cause honestly, I had a very insignificant, stupid, but fun question mm-hmm. for you. But then this whole Elmer Fudd thing, like I said, it just like <laughs> one thing led to another. And I mean, just reading the, the episode about Elmer's hunting dog, trying to get revenge for forcing him to hunt. I can personally yeah. relate to that because the first vet I went to in Nashville, she got onto me and said you're forcing your dog to hunt and i'm like you're a vet and you don't even understand (laughs) that this dog that's pretty scary yeah it it is and it's just like you know you're in this industry and you're looking down on me for having a dog do what its purpose is and so you know sorry to get on a soapbox but i just thought it was really interesting i mean everything from i mean Honestly, I really thought it was in the past 10 or 20 years that all these issues were coming up. You know, hunters are idiots. Hunters just want to kill stuff. You know, hunters shouldn't have shotguns. You know, look at him; He can't even speak English correctly. Like, you know, just belittling them. And I was shocked to find out that it's it's literally been happening since the 30s. It's not like he came out in the 30s and they just started applying those principles in the past 20 years. It's literally been happening for 80 or 90 years. Yeah. Yep. So man, that was uh you know, I'm just thinking
2: maybe we do this life advice with Adam thing, maybe we should do this like long tail with Nick and you tell all these stories, but long tail, short tail, something like that. Yeah, we might want to keep it
0: short. <laughs> we'll we'll see how this plays out. We might get somebody like right now and be like, Wow, y'all are yeah, y'all really missed the target yeah. on this Can one. Can we get to the episode <laughs> yeah. please? so speaking on that yes we'll get to the episode <laughs> follow us on facebook instagram Gundog It yourself like adam interrupted earlier with patreon be sure to hit that up <laughs> and uh yeah i hope you guys enjoy this conversation conversation with scott it was a lot of fun and uh we'll check back with you next week if you're currently in the market for a kennel then be sure to check out gunner kennels gunner kennels is the only kennel that's five star crash rated from the center for pet safety The double wall rotomodal construction ensures it holds up in all types of weather and conditions. Also, Gunner Kennels has a lifetime warranty. These kennels are built to last a lifetime and Gunner stands behind that. Gunner also has all the accessories you could need from fan kits to help keep them cool, performance and orthopedic pads to help keep them comfortable and ready to go after long travels, and even tie down straps to help ensure there's no worries for the kennel moving or sliding around in your truck. So if you need man's best kennel for man's best friend, head on over to gundogityourself.com and click on the Gunner link. Be sure to purchase your kennel, accessories, and even gift cards for holidays and birthdays through our link, and it will go a long way in helping out the podcast. All right, we're joined by Scott Caldwell of Rusty Gun Kennels. He decided to bless us with his presence tonight. Scott, how you doing?
1: I'm doing all right. Yeah, I don't know if it's a blessing. I heard you had an open bed for the night, so I figured I'd swing by on my way through. Hey, you're always welcome at Nick's house
2: <laughs> or my house. Thanks for coming on again, man. No, that's no issues at all, guys. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, it's always good to spend some time with you and talk bird dogs. We've been talking bird dogs for like three hours now. So I was going to
1: ask, what are we talking about tonight? <laughs> yeah, well, we don't
2: really have an agenda. <laughs> no, we always do. Um, I mean, it's always easy to talk to you about, about training dogs. So, um, yeah, man, we, we talked with you in the last episode before – Kind of about your your dks and yep. dispelled some myths there, so personally I'd like to f- focus on some of your training methods that you use so let's start with like you get a puppy and what are some of the first things you do to to get that puppy
1: started yep, absolutely so it, we've adopted the training method uh and, and really it's more of a mindset um as you know, we're pretty active in navda we're we're really active in uh, the German and the DK system. Um, We look at every dog, potentially, whether it's our dog or a young client dog, and we have the discussion with them on goals as far as this dog is going to be a VC or we're going to the invitational. And and I think by setting yourself up for that um, and just having that mindset going into it, whether you actually test at that level or not – you're already setting yourself up with a schedule or a direction direction plan. You, you have an end goal in mind exactly. that you're kind of backtracking For the and building up to. And I wish I could kind of claim that as my own. Uh, but, you know, talking to Mark Whalen um, and working with the NAVDA guys and stuff like that, Mark came down, oh God, must have been eight years ago or so and helped us with a force fetch clinic. And that's one of the things that he hit upon like within the first five minutes. And that's what he says. Like every dog I get, and he's a, he's a hunter. He, he doesn't own a kennel. Uh, he trains sometimes, but I mean, he looks at, he said, every dog I get, I look at with the, with the, the promise and the guidelines that this dog I'm taking to the invitational. And so he goes into it with that mindset to begin with. And we, we, it took me a few years to understand what that meant, uh, we've messed around and played around at the kennel and where we do stuff as far as what do we train first? How do we train? What do we do this? How does this work? How does this not work? Um, but then it just kind of settled in. It's like, oh, okay, this is how this works. Right. And you, you know, we, we've kind of talked
0: for hours about bird dogs. So, you know, a few things that we touched on earlier, You you mentioned trying to explain to people don't you're not necessarily training for a test date you're training for the test eventually and backtracking and going at the pace of the dog and and that's really important because a lot of people they get these dogs and it's kind of like they get a date set in their head and they're pushing 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 for it and so you have somebody with a young pup that they're doing stuff that are it's really outside their age or maturity level and it does it it ends up doing more harm than good necessarily so so like you have a versatile dog you're working towards the nav to vc you're working towards the german testing
1: and all that what 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 are your first steps with any dog any pup it's uh, you guys have hit upon it on multiple podcasts but i mean it's all introduction um That first year of that pup's life, it's, it's introduction to everything. It's, um, introduction to gunfire, introduction to ducks, introduction to birds, introduction to field and search and water. Um, we look at it like that and it's a great thing that you had Emily on, uh, the last couple podcasts ago where Grayson had mentioned the comment and I heard you guys say they can do no wrong at that age as far as I'm concerned. Yep. They really can do no wrong at that age. You let that dog develop. We're trying to mold it to a little bit. Um, and for us personally in the kennel, uh, our personal gun dogs, we try to test those dogs somewhere between eight months and a year in the natural ability. And, you know, we talked about it earlier today. I, I really am not concerned with what that dog scores on that test um it, there's so many factors that can happen at a natural ability test you guys and and um really the test the what i the reason we still run the natural ability tests and we we from the kennel why we put our dogs in natural ability test is because i can look across the litter i can look across a group of dogs and see if we're doing something right or wrong you know, we look for markers. You know, if I've got 10 puppies, eight of them test and all eight of them don't swim or don't have high swim scores, that's a potential issue. Yeah. It's not just like the, the, the owner or the trainer did something
2: wrong. Then you can see across the spectrum, this is a genetic thing that we need to, we need to fix in our gene pool at that point. Correct. So <laughs> I'll put you on the spot cause you're confident. I, and I know I can put you on the spot. So, for people that don't have a kennel and are not doing this professionally, what's the purpose of doing natural ability then? I mean, I've got my opinions about it, but obviously we want to hear yours.
1: <laughs> it, it, realistically, to me, it, it there's a couple of responsibilities. It, it's exactly what we were just talking about. One, I think there's a responsibility to the breeder that if you're getting a dog, that you're helping them out, and if, especially if they require it to test that dog so that they can identify those genetic issues. The other thing is, is most of the individuals within the organization that I feel anyway, um, that are running the natural ability tests are individuals that are new to the organization. This may be their first or second bird dog. Um, and are really probably new to just handling and handling their dog during a test. Yep. And and so you can learn as a handler and as a dog owner so much at that period of just running your dog in that test. And and again, it is all about the introductions of stuff. So you're gonna do that stuff to try and develop your dog anyway. We tell about all the time, we said it before, is you know, we get a lot of people to say, Well, I'm not interested in testing my dog. I'm not gonna run a field trial, I'm not in it for a competition. But like we were talking about is if you just train your dog to that level or that ability, then you're, you're light years ahead of your average person. Absolutely. So the NA test is ultimately really just
0: feedback for the breeder and and a good introduction level for new people and everything. But, you know, like you were saying, the testing environment, it's a completely different learning opportunity for people. And, you know, being the main correspondent for my chapter for new people reaching out, asking what NAVD is about, you know, I get all the time people saying that they don't have any interest in testing. And I advise them the same way Norm advised me as far as even if you don't test, if you train for the test, it gives you a direction and objectives right. to hit and an end goal like you're talking about at the very start of this. And then then by the end of it, if you do test, it's a completely different scenario and learning environment and you learn a lot more about your dog because it is completely different than just meeting up with a few buddies and throwing some birds in the field and having a good time it gives you it gives you an actual direction and objective while you're out there no i agree well on top of the the goals i mean i think that's extremely
2: important is having a goal with your dog it also forces you into this environment as a handler where you're nervous i mean when i was testing my dog in NA, you were actually apprentice judging when I ran my dog in NA at the Rappahannock chapter. And, um, and you know, I, I was very much prepared, but when I get up there and the judge that's handling me is like, all right, it's go time. You know, Yeah. I'm like, Ooh, you know, I'm, I'm nervous. I'm like, I don't want to say I'm out there shaking, but I'm, I'm nervous. And I believe 100% that the dogs can sense that So when people are like, well, why does that matter? If that's the only test I'm going to do, you're going to be in a situation with your dog where you have to, you're going to be nervous about something and you've got to work through it. Whether it's hunting or your dog's getting ready to run into a road or you're just in a situation you haven't been in before and you're nervous, the dog can sense it. Well now it's not the first time you've done it cuz you've right. tested before.
1: I mean, you're in the North Mountains of Maine hunting hard for 2 days and not and getting a single point on a grouse and all of a sudden your dog slams point. That that instantaneous like, "Oh shit, this might be my last opportunity to shoot this bird." You know. <laughs> Absolutely.
0: You get you get that nervous energy and and the dog's pick up on it and You know, that's why we do this because it puts you in a different situation. You become a better handler and trainer because of it, because you're putting yourself in different situations and you have a better, well rounded dog because they're used to being just in a fun training field then a testing environment and then a hunting scenario you know like you said the excitement from shooting a bird or maybe a nervous situation if you're chucker hunting on the side of a cliff and you're just like oh crap i don't want my dog over there but right. <laughs> you know it's
1: right they feed off the energy of the
0: handler but for sure yeah.
1: we just did two clinics um kind of tie it back to the whole training aspect we just did two clinics here last month um, a force fetch and a duck search clinic. And that, that was a key component at those clinics was helping people to understand that these dogs read and understand our body language and our tone of voice more than we ever can understand. I mean, it really is at a point that is pretty, it's pretty phenomenal. Right. And and
0: we we were talking about that with me and Lucy just yesterday. You know, I was having one of those typical days at work to where you're just not in the happiest of moods. And my wife called and said, what's for dinner? I don't know. I have to go work my dog. And it was a situation where I'm like, I need to go work my dog instead of we had an objective. And just the entire time, Lucy wasn't exactly acting up to her, her level that she normally does. And it took me a second to realize it's because of me. I'm I'm in a pissy mood and she's picking up off yep. of it. And so I, you know, put her up, had a beer, calmed down, let the day go by and then got her back out and we had a good productive training session afterwards.
1: Yeah, you I say this all the time. You cannot train a dog with emotion. If your emotions get in the way, then it's just another hurdle that you got to overcome in, in the whole process. Yeah,
2: and it that- having a, a test uh, as a goal puts you in these scenarios. So it happens at training day all the time. You have someone that's brand new to NAVDA, brand new to gun dogs. They come out and they're calling their dog, their dog's not coming to him. And they go, he, he always comes to me when, you know, I mean, at this home. is the only time yeah. this is never, this is yep. not worked. And yeah. it's like, yeah, you're, this is a completely new environment. Your dog's met 12 dogs today. Um, and, and you're nervous
1: about it. You're, here you are with your dog. And on top of that, I guarantee you, 90% of the time, their tone of voice goes from here, 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 here. <laughs> yep. <Yeah. laughs> you know, and, and I, 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 I say this a lot, and people from home will understand, and people I've trained their dogs for will understand, because I, I reiterate this all the time is, you know, if you just put yourself in this scenario on your recall with your dog, that if you came home from work, And your significant other was on the front porch and they, they, as soon as you got out of the vehicle or the truck or whatever, that person was like here, get over here, here. (laughs) Most, most people are going to turn around get back in the truck and head the other way. So why is a dog any different? Exactly. Yeah. So
2: they can sense it better than we can. Absolutely. So um, let's get into some of the specifics earlier. You said, you know, for a puppy, they can do no wrong. And, and I understand what you mean, um, but let's get into some of the specifics. Let's start with bird intro. Right. How do you do bird intro with a with a brand new dog?
1: Um, it really depends on age. Um, young dogs, um, it's not any different than like what I've heard you guys talk about before. I, I have no issues in actually promote the dog kind of dominating the bird. Um, you I'll, mean
2: you're going to let a pointing dog catch a bird? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't
1: care. I've seen dogs. This has been said before. I love a dog that, like, was running open field and then all of a sudden stops for a split second, stares at a piece of grass, and dives into that grass with and grabs that bird. Yep. And and it's like you, you have to understand the mechanics of that. That dog hit that scent cone and instantaneously knew exactly where that bird was. Yep. And so a takeout like that at a young age, um, something is going on between the nose and the brain saying, and it's almost like an invisible line saying, that's where that bird is. And I know it.
2: Yep. It's got an accurate nose. Yep. And I think it builds a lot of uh, drive, not necessarily, it does build drive, but it builds intensity in the dog. Yeah, If you let them catch and dominate a bird at a young age, maybe when they catch another one, it's not a big deal. You just yeah. let it slide. They have a lot of desire to be after birds. So then when you start kind of taking a little bit out of them with steadiness, it doesn't take away the intensity while the dog is on
1: point. Yeah. And you can, so, I mean, a dog that initially we're talking a puppy, so we're talking a dog more than likely under six months old. Okay. The dog catches a few birds. That's not the end all to be all we're going to teach that dog what right looks like eventually anyway. But there is a point where you do need to start reining that in to a certain extent. So, I mean, you know, the first couple, like I said, introductions, the bird might even be, you know, flightless. I may pull all the flight feathers off one side, you know, because I want that dog to see, Oh, yep. I smelled it. I found it. And it's right here. Um, but then you kind of start, okay, maybe the next couple of times, you put that quail down, you just set it in the grass, and it has all its flight feathers so that when that puppy goes to pounce in it and that bird gets out of the way, the puppy kind of self-teaches itself, oh, wait, crap, uh, I, I didn't catch it that time. And if it chases, let it chase. Let the bird dog chase. Build that drive. Let it let it go to a certain extent. There's other things that we do or we can do to kind of start at that level, that foundation level, I won't say reining it in, but but showing the dog what's right. You know, if, if if you've got a dog that's consistently flash pointing and then goes for the takeout and then chases for ten minutes, what do you think the biggest issue is in that dog? Is it the chase and the drive or is it the recall? So what do you go back and train? Do you train pointing or do you train recall? You know, so the reward for that dog is actually the chase. Let me go chase this bird down. Take, take that chase away a little bit. Say, no, you're not allowed to go chase that bird. You didn't stay steady enough. And then next couple of interactions, if that dog actually points and holds steady long enough for you to get up there to flush, let that dog chase that bird down. That's, that's the reward for, hey, I'm steady. And that's introduction. That's all introduction. Right. And there's no again. There's no wrong that dog can do.
0: Absolutely, and and what you just said, the reward for a lot of dogs is the chase, and and I think so many people, you know, we say all the time, generalities in dog training doesn't work, and so many people. Assume that the reward for the dog is the same as the reward for the owner, which is the bird in hand, right? Or the bird in the mouth in the case of the dog. And that's not always the case, depending
1: on the dog's makeup. Some dogs live for that chase. Not on a young high drive dog. Yeah. You know, not on a young high drive dog. That yeah. young high drive dog wants to chase that bird, right? And, and you know, we, we've talked about it a, a little bit, touched on it here and there
0: over a few episodes. Is if you start reining in that chase too soon too early you can actually do a lot of harm with the dog's pointing capability or intensity and and that's kind of what i ran into into with lucy whether you you know you're doing it with a check cord e-collar just verbal whatever if you if you start taking that out too early it can cause a lot of issues down the road for you and so it's kind of like you're saying you have to know your dog and if it's a high drive dog let it chase for a little while and eventually it's a balancing act starting to take it out at the appropriate rate i guess you can say I,
1: i mean if you've got a dog that is has no problem with his drive no problem with the chase and and that's where you start working on that recall piece you know i mean that's a foundation obedience thing here means here Bottom line, you're not teaching the dog, whoa, you're just saying, hey, here, you know, we've all been there. Natural ability test. Dog puts up a bird. The judges are going to let that dog chase that bird. And then next thing you know, 30 minutes later, they're still chasing that dog in the woods on the bird. Yep. And and so that goes into cooperation. That goes into, uh, it's not judged at the natural ability level, but that goes into a little bit of obedience, you know. It's so nice that, you know what, if you got a dog that puts up a bird, runs it to the wood line, and then you turn around and say, here, and that dog, oh, okay, comes back and finds another bird. You're like, man, that's awesome. Great. right? You know?
0: Absolutely, and so you know the NA test. It's it's all about exposure and intro and and natural ability of the dog. And and you said that you y'all typically aim to test your dogs between ten months and a year old, right? What is it like? You know, you test dog NA. What's the next steps for you? You know, kind of guide us on. Okay, you're done with NA. You got the feedback for the breeder. What's your next goals? To eventually get to your end goal, which is the VC or w- whichever test so level you're at. For, for
1: us personally, um, and, and we've had years of failure to refine this technique. <laughs> yep. So uh, for us personally, uh, what I like to do is um, immediately following uh, natural ability, we go ahead and force fetch the dogs. And we force fetch probably to a higher level than... I would say your average person, your average handler, maybe even your average pro trainer at that extent, and the fact that we force-fetch the dogs to the point that uh, they will reliably do a 50-yard blind retrieve over water. Nice. That is because for us and how we train leading up to the next testing piece, we train force-fetch, we then do duck search, and then we do steadiness. So by doing the force fetch and, and having that dog reliably doing a 50-yard blind across water, we have set up a mechanism that when we start duck search, we have a mechanism or we have a foundation in place that if that dog, we'll say either balks at the shoreline to go out or goes out and turns around and comes right back or goes out and searches for like a minute, we have a mechanism built in place that we can push the dog back out right you know w- without any you know without encumbrance of trying to put more ducks out or shackled ducks or taped ducks or anything along those lines the dog understands that when we say fetch in this direction or back or whatever your command is that the dog's going to go to that distance and start searching yep to a certain extent
2: right and that's uh that's the same order that I was, you know, mentored to, to do things, uh, in a test and force fetch transition that to duck search and then steadiness. So when I talk to people that show up to train and they go, I got three birds, what do you think I should do with them? And it's like, well, I don't know. You tell me, what are you working on? Right. Well, I'm kind of, I'm in the middle of force fetch right now. Sell them to somebody else. Uh, yeah. And my immediate response <laughs> is like, I'll buy your birds because I'm working on steadiness, you know, and it'd be, yeah. but everyone wants to see their dog point. So people end up in this dilemma of I get to see my dog point and now it goes for the bird, but it won't come back to me. Or it doesn't go for the bird and it goes and searches for the next bird or whatever. So sure, they accomplish their goal of seeing the dog point, but the dog hasn't been force fetched yet. So,
1: or or you even no worse to, than that, like we were just talking about earlier, no recall. Right, or no recall. You know. Yep. No solidified recall on the dog. Right. So, it's, it people get very,
2: they get down the wrong path, in my opinion, sometimes because they're like, I got a pointing dog. I've got to put birds in front of this dog. And I went for a long time without putting birds in front of my pointing dog. And I can tell you, he didn't forget how to
1: point, you know. No. They won't forget how to point. No. So it, it, it's one of those things where and and full disclaimer is that, you know, I've had the luxury, and I talked about it before, is we see a lot of dogs. And yeah. we train a lot of dogs. I've judged a lot of dogs. Um you kind of kind of start coming up with methods that works best for you and your situation. And that's where all of this is based off of. Again it's going back to that mindset of okay I'm building a versatile champion. How do I build this versatile champion? You know, it's no different than how do you build a house? You don't put you don't start putting the roof on the house before you lay a foundation. Yeah, exactly. You, know? you don't start putting drywall up on the walls before you freaking finish the outside of the house. And that's the way I kind of look at this is like okay, I don't start teaching the dog to do one thing and I haven't set a foundation for something else, you know? So, I mean, we really look at it along those lines, you know? So where some people
2: might be a little bit uh, confused, let's clear this up. So we're going to do force fetch after the NA test. correct? But we've got to introduce the dog to water. Yep. The dog's got to swim for the NA test. Yep. Some people might think, "Ooh, I'll force fetch my dog ahead of time and then it'll go in, which is just... You know, and you're already shaking your head like, no, don't do that. No, don't do that. So, yeah. I mean, I I actually. Cover that and then also, like,
1: tell everyone how you go about water introduction as well. Yeah, so, and again, a full disclaimer. Blake, I'm sorry because I know we did this with your dog years and years years (laughs) ago. But that was kind of a little bit of an old school adage like, okay, you've got a dog that's not willing to swim or not willing to go into water after bumper. Well, start force fetch you know, and you're asking yourself, okay, why am I doing this with a six month to eight month old puppy? You know, we, you should absolutely. When we talk about introductions, you should do introduction to force fetch as a puppy. And what does that mean? What does that mean to you? Just fun retrieves. Well, for me, uh, it's,
2: you know, like Nick was saying, fun retrieves, I think that's part of it. More importantly, I'm gonna get them up on the table. Yep. When they're eight, ten weeks old, and yep. feed them up there, and if, that way, when I get them on the table later, I'm not introducing them to something new. What so else? now? So now, when I when I get them up there, it's like, oh yeah, I've been on the table. This is this is a good thing. I'm gonna sit them on my lap. I'm gonna put my fingers in their mouth. I'm gonna yep. mess with their teeth, their gums, yep. all that. So it's not a big deal. So yep. the first time I put them on the table, not new and put my fingers in their mouth, not new. The only thing that's new is you're going to hold these fingers in your mouth the way I tell
1: you to yep. for as long as I tell you to. Exactly, and and that's a piece, that's a key piece of this whole thing is when we're talking about introductions to puppies is the first time your hand goes in that dog's mouth should not be when that dog is a year old and I'm tied to a force fetch table or tied to your bumper or something along those lines. Absolutely.
0: So we we're talking about force fetch and that, that's in general, a very common question brought up by listeners and, and you know, how do I force fetch? And you're, you're telling me earlier that you're kind of in the middle of a different outlook on your force fetch Correct. program and, and yep. kind of figuring out how you can make it better. Even though you've obviously had success in the past, you're constantly trying to better yourself and your program and your methods. So what, what are you, what did you see wrong or that wasn't quite where you wanted it in your old force fetch program? And what are you doing to rectify
1: that now? So when I start my force fetch previously, um, and pretty much the, we'll say, we'll talk about like the standard quo. There, there's a couple of different methods for force fetch and you've got a no pressure, uh, you've got an ear pinch and you've got a toe hitch. Um, and for years and years and years, I utilized the ear pinch. Um, and I'll be honest with you, I fumbled. I fumbled around with it for about the first two to three years, probably first 20 dogs uh, I, to where I was comfortable enough that I could be coordinated enough to not just apply the pressure to the ear, but then also the, where a lot of people have – where a lot of people have issues is that transition to collar. Yeah. And transitioning from the actual pressure on the dog physically to a remote pressure with the collar. That's where you're going to see a lot of people have, and a lot of dogs have their first hurdles and their first issues. So I noticed earlier you were helping Kylie on FaceTime. You were watching her. <laughs> She's
2: force fetching a dog, and I'm kind of leaning over your shoulder and as soon as you started talking about the toe hitch, I was like, Oh wow. I didn't know that Scott did the toe hitch. Uh, but I wanted to save it for the podcast. So it obviously works. I mean, you're doing it. You've, you've taken multiple dogs to the invitational. Like you're a very successful trainer. Um, you know, standing stone. I think Ethan and cat use the, use the toe hitch as well. So there's a lot of people out there that use it. I've only force fetched one dog. So I'm I'm stuck in my ways right now on the ear pinch and specifically with overlaying the e-collar, I can put my hand under the collar, mm-hmm. the regular collar. I can pinch their ear with my thumb and forefinger and then I can, when I overlay the e-collar, I can put that remote right in there so that as I'm pinching the ear, I'm also pressing the button. So just go into the details
1: on how it was, how it didn't work for you and why the toe hitch so, does work for you. And, and again, you know, I'm going to use this phrase a lot tonight cause I have switched a lot of methods here fairly recently, but in full disclaimer, I've only just recently started utilizing the toe hitch and I'll give a little, so I had used it in the past. Um, I wasn't comfortable. Um, I used it based off of reading books, articles, and a couple of YouTube videos. Um, and just was not seeing the result that I was hoping for. And, really was kind of like, okay, let me go back to what I know. And that was exactly how you were talking about, Adam, as far as, yep, collar, remote in hand, try to get the ear between there somewhere and apply pressure. As we know, one, you've got to kind of be a fairly coordinated individual to get all that pulled (laughs) out.
0: It can turn into a cluster quick. And if
1: you've got a big dog or a dog that's got some drive or something like that, it could really turn into a cluster pretty quick, you know? And, and then now you're just teaching bad habits because yeah. your timing's off. The dog's not understanding what the pressure's coming from or what are you supposed to be doing? You're probably getting frustrated. You're getting frustrated. Exactly. So like I said, it, it took me a bunch of dogs to get comfortable with the ear pinch. And so I've got a very close friend of mine, Blake horse, Blake and Stacy had bought a dog from me. Oh, five, six years ago. Uh, they've grown in NAVDA, they've become very successful, they're training a few dogs here and there, and Blake was shown tow hitch by a, by a guy um, that does a lot of DD training. And after the last time we all went to the Invitational together, I was really watching and really impressed with how his dogs reacted and then how he was able to the dogs understood pressure on pressure off. And and we know when we talk about this a lot of times, and I think we talked about it before, you know, the political correctness of pressure, how much pressure, Yeah. you know, am I making this dog squeal and roll around? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? You know, pressure should always come with instantaneous, positive reinforcement instantaneous. And I think Adam, you were listening to me, you know, Kylie's working on FaceTime with a dog and I'm, I'm over there, like, as soon as the dog did the task, over the phone, I'm like, oh, good boy, good boy. Yeah. You know? Yep. So, um, I asked Blake, I said, hey, show me how you tow hitch. And and this is a perfect situation where, you know, I've been training dogs for 20-plus years. Blake's been doing it for five. Yep. And, but I'm like, hey, take a couple hours of me this, this Saturday and show me what you're doing. Show me what you know. And we went down, we went to his place, and I took a couple of grips with me and that I've been having some issues with. And um, within about an hour, hour and a half, I was like, it clicked. I'm like, oh, geez, okay. This is how you put the rope around the legs. With This is the size rope you use. This is how you apply the pressure. And there was a lot of things that I didn't understand initially with toe hitch. So utilizing... Um, you know, the right size rope, for instance. A lot of people, their first instinct is to go to Lowe's or Walmart and buy like a 550 or a small nylon piece of cord, and that's what they put on their dog. And it just cuts into their skin it, probably. It is rough. It's yeah. tight. It doesn't loosen up quick. You know, Blake was using almost a 3-8-inch, and I'll show you guys later what I use now, almost a 3-8-inch diameter rope, so a bigger size rope. Um, when I first started doing it, I had the, the first loop – attached pretty far up the dog's front leg almost around its knee thereabouts and then the rope was running down the front of the leg well blake puts it down almost right where the dew claw would normally be and then runs the rope behind the leg and then underneath the pads so i would also think that that slightly thicker rope actually
0: accomplishes the pinch portion a little bit quicker and easier on the toes also. Because it's, it's not so much the pinch. Okay. It's
1: that pressure. If you take any dog and take even your thumb and forefinger and just kind of just squeeze between them, their first reaction is to pull their foot away. Yeah. If any of us has ever tried to trim the nails of our dogs, you know, they don't <laughs> like their feet being messed with. Yep. They really don't. So the thicker rope actually releases better. So the smaller, thinner rope... When you when you cinch up on it, actually doesn't release as quickly as we would like to have happen. And, so
0: and when we're dealing with something with the timing that's so yep. important, as soon as you get it in your mouth and the pressure stops, that's very important. That you very important. You don't lose a even a tenth of a se- second extra. That timing can be
1: paramount to the success of the program. Exactly. Exactly. And so, utilizing a short rope. We're not using an eyelet because we're not trying to pull our dog's paw or foot or toes into something. We're just trying to apply that pinch pressure. Literally, what I'm able to do now is with a shorter rope, I make a loop at one end. I wrap it around. I just throw it on my hand and my wrist. And now i basically got both hands free again. So I can still manipulate the dog if I need to manipulate the dog. I can have the remote completely in my one hand so I can use any finger I want to hit a button. You know, as opposed to just trying to put the ear between here and hand through the collar and, and all this other stuff. I've got positive control of the dog at all times. I've got positive control of my remote all the time. And I've got positive control of the pressure on the dog all the time. So it really kind of speeds up the process
0: a little bit that that's really interesting cuz like like Adam, you know, I haven't force fetched a whole bunch of dogs either and I've primarily used the the ear pinch and so just listening to you talk about the toe hitch it it, it kind of gets my my brain spinning a little bit to to maybe on the next dog try it out cuz i mean worst case scenario i learned something new but right. uh you know besides the method something that really stuck out to me from what you're saying is you've been doing dog training for over 20 years yep and you were humble enough to say hey there's some holes in my training or i can at least make it a little bit more efficient on myself by trying another method and as you know in the in the dog world you know people get stuck in their ways absolutely and their method is the method a- yep. and you know there's so many things that you can learn from other people and how they go about doing it. And you you reached out to a guy you knew that's been doing it for a quarter of the time that you've been doing it. And you learned something new that now you're applying into your own yep. training program. And I think that a lot of people can learn from something like that because you had success. You didn't have to change,
1: but you saw to where you can make something better and you went for it. Exactly. and And just to kind of tell you how new this is, uh, we ran a force fetch clinic, I think, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, four weeks ago now. So if anybody's listening from that clinic, I apologize deeply. <laughs> um, <laughs> but at that clinic, I showed ear pinch and I discussed toe hitch, but I yeah. said, it's just not my method. And I just said, I just think it puts too much pressure wrongly on the dog from what I had known in the past. Yeah. So, I mean, I think exactly what you're saying. Being humble enough to be like, okay, something's not working. I need to change my method. Or I need to address adjust my training to suit my dog's demeanor and temperament. You have to be flexible to that. You absolutely have to be flexible to that.
2: Yeah, and the other thing you talked about humility right there is the humility on on the end of the guy. You know, you've been training a dog for 20 years. And the guy that's just been doing it for five Has a method, and you go, oh, man, great. Well, it takes humility on his end, too, to not be like, see, I told you, because it just (laughs) makes makes people less receptive. You know, humility is a two-way street, I guess. It it is,
1: and thankfully, Blake's a close enough friend. He was the best man at my wedding, and uh, he's a close enough friend and uh, in full understanding. Um, I won't say that he didn't say, why haven't you been doing this before? (laughs) Right. You know, but at the end of the day, I mean – We're all here for the same mission. I mean, we're all here for the same accomplishment. And you touched upon it earlier today, Nick, when you were talking about, you know, being stuck in your methods. The first thing you did with Lucy was try to train her like you did Rachel. And immediately you were like, oh, shit, this ain't working. And that
0: was also a product of being green and being inexperienced. And, you know, mentors are great, but if you only have one source... yep you learn how they do it and you, you know, especially if it's from the type of person that's like, Hey, this is the method. This is how you do it. You try and apply that to all dogs. And, you know, I talk about it all the time just by me switching. Every dog's different, even within the same breed, but by me switching breeds, I tried training a small Munste the same way I trained a short hair and, you know, with the right dogs that might work, but I wasn't, considering the difference in personalities the difference in confidence uh genetics all of that stuff and i just well this is how you train a dog and ultimately i feel like that that really was the biggest lesson i've had to date with these dogs is i need to understand the why i need to learn as many different methods as possible and i need to focus in on how that individual dog is reacting and don't just keep banging my head against the wall training one way because that's the way that i was told to do it because there's you you can you can alter course if need be and a lot and that's i th- my experience, when people get stuck on a hurdle or something, instead of sitting back and asking, what can I do different, they blame the dog instead right. of the method. And sometimes it's just something as simple as changing your method. And so look to yourself first and say, what can I do better?
1: It, it is, but that's also, we talked about that earlier today, too. We had a lot of conversations today for over four hours. But um, <laughs> it, that can be a little bit of a double-edged sword, though, too, as you know. Um you go to yep. You go to any Navda training day, and as many people and experienced people are that you have there, you will have different training methods, and you will have a bunch of people like, oh, well, maybe I should train my dog like this, and then two <laughs> weeks later, it's like, oh, well, let me train my dog like this.
0: Absolutely, and that's actually our our next episode. And we usually don't pitch episodes, but drinking from a water hose. It's when if you just show up to training day and say. I don't know what I'm doing. How to? How do I train steadiness? If there's 10 people there, you're going to get 10 different yep. ways of doing it. And that's why it's so important to understand why. And a lot of people will get kind of offended. If, if you gave me advice on how to do something and I ask you, well, why? Some yeah. people actually get offended by that. Yeah. And you don't mean anything by it. You need to understand why do you do it that way. But a lot of people, they don't even know the why. that That's just how they were told and taught and learned. Yep. And they're just telling you. And instead of, you know, thinking about it, why do I do it that way? They might get offended. And so it's not an unfair question to ask why. And it kind of goes back to the humility thing that we were talking about earlier is, you know, if you're t- advising and trying to help somebody train, you should be able to explain why you're telling them to do it a certain way.
1: Yeah. It, it, it also kind of goes to, and people need to understand, and and nobody's going to be an expert at this. It takes years of seeing dogs and years to kind of realize what that dog's telling you, you know, with that dog's body language, that dog's demeanor. And so you can't expect somebody with their first dog, second dog, third dog to kind of be like, be able to read every single dog. That's one reason why the NAVDA Apprentice Program is as long as it is and as extensive as it is because they want to make sure that these judges understand and can read these dogs and understand what that dog is doing in the field, in the water, during the task, and and give it a comprehensive score according to that versus just saying, oh, that dog is screwing up. Well, and it kind of – this all ties together,
2: but the Apprentice Program – I'm assuming here cause I'm not an apprentice or a judge as you know, but mm-hmm. for, for the, whoever's listening out there, so they know, <laughs> but, um, it, it also, you see different dogs, but then you're also exposed to different judges. Yep. So when the three of you get together or could be four, right with an yep. apprentice, four or five, yep. get together and go, here's, here's where I'm at on, on my scores for this dog for these certain attributes or, or whatever. Um, And you're seeing different people's opinions too. Yeah. And that's a big thing for me is like Nick's saying, you can talk to 10 different people and you get 10 different opinions. Now the judges are always going to be, you know, within a number, I would like to think within, within one digit of each other. But, but what you don't get to hear when the test scores are read is like the thought process on it. It's just, here's the score.
1: Unless you go up and ask questions, right? You know, we 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 promote every test. The senior judge will stand up there and say, "If you have any questions, come talk to us right now, right?" While we have our cards in hand, yeah, because we are looking at and, and I wanted to digress out of the training aspect of this, but the we are looking at up to ten dogs a day, sure. And so Joe Snuffy comes up and says, "Well, why did I get a three in search?" Well you everybody pulls their card out for that dog and, and then you read your you individual notes, notes right right, and you explain why you saw or what you saw or how or why you arrived at the score that you did to the best of your yeah. ability without being you know too forthcoming and stuff like that and and if you're an apprentice after each dog, it's not just where are you at with your score, but be prepared to be asked why why yeah. How did you get to that score? What'd you see?
2: <laughs> you don't yeah. get to just hide behind everyone else and Ooh, go, oh, well, no, 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 they said no, three, no, no. so I'll say three as well. Maybe maybe <laughs> much
1: later in your apprentice career, like hey, after, yeah. you know, you've you've successfully judged a couple hundred dogs and you're like on your last couple of tests before you hopefully get approved, you know, maybe right. they can kind of say, oh, yeah, we, we see you know what you're doing and everything like that. But no, I mean, be prepared to be like, hey, you got a three. We're all at threes too, but... Why are you at a three? (laughs) Because
2: all you guys are three. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's, that makes sense. So, really, uh, I mean, on the topic of judging and stuff, there's really no such thing as a new nav to judge. Not really. Because you've been, you've been forced to, there shouldn't be. Through the apprentice program, you've had to judge all these different dogs. And then, and then you're being judged too as part of the apprentice program, right?
1: Yep. Absolutely. So, So, I mean, you're, you're being looked at for everything from, your interaction with the handlers to your demeanor, to, uh, your observations, um, your ability to, your ability to reflect those observations onto your scorecard and also to the handler, uh, and, and coaching and guiding and mentoring that handler through the process. Um, it's, it's all taken into account.
2: Yeah. So let's stop judging and get back to training. I'm um, all about that. <laughs> so, um, a few months ago when you were up here, I learned a lot from you uh, about e-collar stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the things you told me was, you know, make it count. I have always been a, a fan of not using an e-collar to teach things, but to reinforce things. And then after hearing about uh, operant conditioning and talking to you about when you use the e-collar, make it count. Now I'm, I'm starting to take on like, Kind of a new, some some new thoughts with the e-collar. So talk to us about, you know, how you use an e-collar, how you intro let's, it and all let's that stuff. Let's put so. that
1: into perspective a little bit. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. That's exactly. So the e-collar for, and I'll go out on a limb here, the e-collar <laughs> for probably 80 to 85% of the bird dog world is a recall device only. Yeah. Meaning, I will beep you, I will stimulate you, and you will come to my side. Yep. You really are only using, like almost like your brain, you're only using 10% of the ability of that, that tool. Absolutely. So when I said, if you're going to use the e collar for a correction, make it have consequence. A correction should have consequence. If you're telling a dog no, I don't do that. There should be some, it's just like a child, you know, the, the pet peeve here, I'll put myself out there. I cannot stand the countdown parents. Right. You better do this. I'm going to count to three. One, two, two and a half, three. <laughs> yeah. And the kid still doesn't do it. Please. Dogs. Yeah. Dog. <laughs> Dogs are no, no different. Yep. So If you're going to say, "Uh, ah, or no, there should be a consequence to that. Right. And And that is, and that's why I
2: brought up the operant conditioning because it clicked with me after talking to you and talking to other people. I'm like, oh, that is positive punishment. So when I'm using the e-collar as positive punishment, it needs to be cranked up. You know, for a while, I'm like, this is my range on the collar. It's either this number or this number, right? you know, or it's this number on low or high and that's it. And now I'm like, oh, I might need to be at a five high for positive punishment. Like, you know, I'm adding in some punishment here, but then for negative reinforcement, it's going to be much lower sometimes.
1: Much lower. So if you're applying pressure to drive a dog away from you you're doing that based off of the fact that you've taught that dog the way to turn that pressure off is going in that direction. And, and that's utilizing of either placeboards or, you know, when you get to the point in your force fetch that you're driving to a pile of bumpers, yep. you know, or you're, and it starts with that, that pressure to reach. Yeah. You're applying that pressure to have that dog reach Even if it's six inches to get that object in his mouth to turn off that pressure. Yep. You know, and it's immediately followed by like we talked about, just a ton of positive reinforcement. Absolutely. You know, and
0: and it's like what you're just saying that I'd say that's a fair assessment. Eighty five percent of people just it's a recall tool almost, but when you see somebody that really knows what they're doing with an e collar, I mean, it can really open your eyes to how just impressive proper e-collar work can, can be utilized because it's like you are saying, you you can obviously use an e-collar to bring them back. But if you know what you're doing, getting a dog to go away from you, you have a push pull, but then also you can use it for staying still. So there's three different really reactions that you can get out of an e-collar if you know what you're doing. And, but to adam's point is is a lot of people get used to so much that this is my setting for my dog and they don't understand that different scenarios different objectives whatever you're trying to get them to do sometimes you need to be able to adjust that dial accordingly to make it count when you need to give them a little bit more motivation to go away and do something and you know, ultimately teach them that they control the e-collar and they know how to shut off right. the pressure.
1: And, and oftentimes we're on the, the most extreme low setting on the collar. You know, the, the actual physical pressure of either the toe hitch or the ear pinch is actually more than the pressure of the e-collar itself. Right. Okay. So, you know, we utilize the e-collar for uh place training to a certain extent we utilize the e-collar for the force fetch, um, and, and that goes into okay. How do you drive a dog to a pile? Okay, how do you drive that? Your first initial drive to piles may only be five to ten feet. Yeah, in, in reality, and most people, this is where a lot of people give up. And this is the this is a really important fact when it comes to force fetches. You have to go through. Every step, at every distance, at every interval, we all have dogs, or we. There's a lot of dogs out there that if you just walked up and there was a pile of bumpers there, and you tapped them on the ear and told them fetch, after you did your table work, ninety percent of the times, what are they going to do? Run and get a bumper. Yeah, right. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to teach that dog the way you're going to turn this pressure off. I know you know how to go get it. I know that but the only way you're going to turn this pressure off is by going over that pile and picking up that bumper and then extending that pile out further and then hiding that pile, you know, initial, I know a lot of people that don't do drive to blinds on land. And I'm like, why, where do you start your blinds at? Well, across the pond, you never taught them that they can go across the pond. So, you know, drive to pile at 100 yards, 150 yards on on land um, and drive to a blind pile at 100 yards with that pressure on all the way until that dog gets to that pile. Okay. And that's one of the reasons why we try to use as little pressure as possible because you don't want a dog – running a hundred yards away from you going, Arr, ar, 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 you know, <laughs> yep. you're just trying to make enough discomfort that the dog understands. And hopefully you've done your foundation on the table. And then leading up to that, that the dog understands the way that little tickle on its neck stops is by going out there and getting that pile.
0: Right. And I mean, it, to your point you're really you want it set up just enough to annoy them to want to shut it off you're you're not right. trying to fry them or you know right. haven't been the knee for you or anything but you know that that's a great example with the force fetch but to, to play i'm playing devil's advocate here yep. on the e-collar what would you say to the person that you know i have a little bit of element to this myself but there's some people that just absolutely refuses to use an e-collar because they don't want an e-collar-dependent dog. And you've seen it, I'm sure, to where there's some dogs out there that you slap an e-collar on, and they will do absolutely everything that you need them to do. But you take that e-collar off, and it's like they turn deaf. It it
1: automatically shuts off their ears, and they have no idea what's left or right. So here here is, because we've been kind of doing this all night, is I'm going to ask Adam. When I was on the phone with Kylie... What's one of the things I told her she should do with that Griff on the table in between everything she was doing?
2: Is like I forget exactly what it was, but I remember thinking, "Give the dog some like some free time, basically in between the,
1: the free time." But then also, I told her after a couple of sessions, after a couple of iterations of some of yeah. what you're training,
2: try it without without, without any pressure. That. Yeah, now try it with no
1: pressure. So you're, <laughs> you're basically proofing it at that point with no pressure. But that mechanism's still there if you need to go back to it. Yeah. And and also to that, you know,
0: we had Angie Barron on, which people that were asking what Adam was talking about on the operant conditioning. That's what the episode that we covered it on. So go check that out. But you know, she, she alluded to the fact that when you do a correction with the collar, if you're if you do the verbal correction as well as the e collar, and you're consistent with it, then when you don't have the e collar on. That verbal correction acts as the e-collar because they associate that verbal with that pressure as Correct. well. And so if you're consistent enough, you can teach your dog that your verbal has just as much enforcement as that e collar. Right. And you don't have to have it on all the time.
1: And that goes back to what I was, you know, what Adam was saying earlier and what I was saying. Your correction should have consequence. Right. And that dog should understand that before it ever goes to the table. That dog should understand that whatever your correction tone is, ah, ah, no, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, has consequence to it. And when you get to that point where you can have the dog doing simple tasks that we do every day, we talk about foundational obedience and stuff like that, and the dog doesn't do it, and you go, ah, and that dog all of a sudden snaps to attention and does it, Okay, you know you're there to where if when you start weaning the dog off the collar, like we did with Kylie and the Griff tonight, where you're like, okay, do it a couple times without the pressure. But you still got that mechanical mechanism of having to go back to the pressure if you need it. Okay, again, we're teaching the dog here. We're not pushing this dog into submission.
0: Yeah,
2: and that's where I wanted to kind of bring the whole e-collar thing full circle is, you hear a lot of people say you don't use an e-collar to teach the dog. And I've I've been part of that camp for a long time until I really understood the difference between negative reinforcement and positive punishment. So, right. you know, you can use negative reinforcement to teach a dog. Uh, and then the positive punishment is like, that's the known command thing. That's right. when... I'm telling you to heal right now. You know heal really well, and you are just being a little turd right now. Yep. So I'm not going to give you the low-level stimulation and, and hold it down until you get back. I'm going to give you high-level stimulation.
1: I'm going to go, ah, and I'm going to hit the button. It's going to be hard, and then you're going to come back to heal. That That's one of the important pieces, too. I get the question a lot of times, and I'm sure you guys do, what e-collar to buy?
0: Yeah, all the okay. time.
1: What e-collar to buy. I will tell you of the three major companies that are out there, um, I'll even say four. One's lesser. But when you're talking about Garmin Tritronics, Sport um, DogTRA, and DT, all of them operate very similar, if not exactly. It, it's just literally functionality on the remotes themselves. What I would recommend to a lot of people is, is, This is the one thing you don't want to necessarily go cheap on. Yeah. You can go cheap on just about everything else that's out there or on a budget or something along those lines. But don't get like the $129 Cabela's Bass Pro Shop special, you know, (laughs) e-collar that limits your ability to do stuff with the dog. So that $30 e-collar at PetSmart is a no-go? Right. Uh, Right. for me, it would be definitely <laughs> so you know the um that as well as the tracking and training collars. Yeah, a lot of the companies now are promoting those GPS training/slash tracking collars. The, the issue that I have, and you'll see with most individuals that train a lot of dogs and train dogs, I'll even use the, the no-no name of pro trainers, <laughs> they don't use a GPS e collar in training aspects of the dog. Right.
0: It's just too cumbersome.
1: It, just it, for
0: switching and then also it doesn't have the range that that you really yeah, need the, to the functionality,
1: time. finding the buttons, and it goes back to that timing piece. I want to know my my remote, when it's in the ha- my hand, I know exactly where my finger's set and I know exactly what stimulation I'm giving that dog exactly when I want to give that dog that stimulation. So that if I've got a two-button system, knowing that I can go low, medium, high, that literally when it comes to that correction versus I'm trying to push you away now and you're not going, so I'm going to give you an ah-ah. Uh-uh, so I can go from a low one finger to grabbing both buttons at the same time and going ah-ah. Uh-uh, oh, hey, that's that little extra jerk right. to go. Hey, got it.
2: Yeah, and it gives you, depending on the dog, it gives you the ability to to go from the negative reinforcement button to the positive punishment button, right? You know, from, from teaching to correction, yep. Uh, with the press of a button, and the the track and train ones. I mean, we talked about it in the e collar episode. You pretty much got to roll around with one setting on. Am I am I rolling out with the negative reinforcement or the positive punishment button on? And then
1: you can. I mean, you there's know, the, you can change it, but it takes the, the one five seconds. Yeah, the one sport dog model does have a what they call a ramping mode, where as long as you're holding the bump in, or the button, it kind of ramps up automatically. I'm not a big fan of it because there's no it, there's no stopping it. It's not a set level. You know what I mean? I, I like the fact that if I can hit a button and change levels or if I needed to, depending on, on circumstance, if I can just reach up and grab that dial and click it one click, I know what I'm getting. Um, and and I, I do. I own GPS collars, but I use them for hunting.
0: Right. Exactly. That's,
1: that, that's what they're
0: good for. And, yeah. You know, we said it again in our episode. We both have Garmin Alphas. We love them while hunting. And you do have that you know, the training feature that they call it, and it's just the shot collar p- portion of it. You have that if you absolutely need it in, in the hunting field. But, you know, as far as training, that's not what I use. And I, I can't even recall when I've had to use the actual training feature on the Garmin
1: Alpha while hunting because I'm out hunting. I'm not training. Right. I think the best I think right now probably the most versatile if I were to tell anybody the most versatile and guys, I, I I do, I'm with sport dogs. So, I mean, uh, but the, the Garmin 550 plus, you know, it kind of gives you a little bit of the best of both worlds. Um, it does give you a tracking capability, but it is also a tube model standard, like their standard 550 remote that you can utilize. Um, you lose functionality in the tracking a little bit and, for me personally, on the training aspect, you know, those tracking collars are huge. You know, you've got a GPS receiver on there. You've got a big wire usually hanging out. Those collars are big. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, 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 if you're just trying to train your dog wherever, backyard, field, or whatever, sometimes, I mean, having all that collar is a little bit overboard. Absolutely. Well... We actually just covered a lot of ground tonight. We, you know, <laughs>
0: from bird intro to e-collar work to force fetch and everything in between. Uh, but I did want to touch on while we have you here in person is kind of talk about the the clinic training camp, whatever the heck we're going to yep. call it. Eventually, uh, you reached out a, a little while back and and said, "Hey, what can we do to uh, that would be beneficial to to our listeners and and just." Th- training world in general. And, uh, after talking, we kind of came up with an idea for essentially like a hardcore training camp weekend type thing. Uh, we haven't come up with a name, but, uh, tell everybody kind of what you have in your, in your mind, and then we'll kind of get into when we're, we're trying to hold it.
1: Yep. So for us, I think the best way to look at this, um, is to kind of cover, how we train dogs as far as uh hitting the core functions um your basic obedience um and and even going into some of your advanced obedience I mean it's all basic obedience, sit means sit here means here, you know woe means woe right um but then also all how those core fundamentals or uh, and obedience tie into the force fetch, and then how force fetch ties into duck search. And then how we start introduction for steadiness and building a you know like I said building a VC dog, right. that's that's really what it's bo- boiled around. Whether you plan on going to the invitational or not, it, it doesn't matter because all these are core functions amongst gun dogs in general. Yeah, I don't care if you've got a lab because if you think about it, eighty percent of what we do in NAVDA is retriever work. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and there's a lot of retriever guys out there that have no clue on how to do this just as much as there's a lot of versatile guys out there that have no clue on how to do this. (laughs)
0: Exactly. So So we're talking like those four main groups essentially doing kind of like a round robin type weekend and and you have different stations essentially and, and quote unquote, experts, I don't know what we're going to call them, teachers, (laughs) whatever. We'll say experienced individuals. There we go. And, uh, you know, they're going to be kind of – you're essentially just getting a full weekend of, like you said, the tools that you need and the knowledge that you need to, you know, shoot for the VC, whether you end up testing for it or not. And so uh, we actually announced it a a few episodes back, and we hadn't really followed up on it because uh, obviously – the world is a little hectic right now and crazy yep. so you know we're shooting for early fall this year to do that but with all the uncertainty with uh job situations travel plans everything going on with the virus we uh we got together and decided it'd probably be better to do do a spring training camp or something Correct. like that yep. and uh that that'd probably be a little bit easier for for people to kind of know what they what they can get away with a few months out instead of trying to force it in right now
1: yeah i I think with everything that's happened um with the pandemic with um like you said people's personal situations jobs and everything else uh to kind of pull this all together by early fall i think might be a, a shot shot in the dark yeah and,
2: and the good news is spring training sounds way cooler than summer camp <laughs> <laughs> i know we're not set on a name yet but i was going with summer camp and nick kept looking at me like dad dude we're not calling this summer camp <laughs>
1: bird dog boot camp yeah we'll call it, uh, that sounds too rough man, <laughs> oh, man. so yeah, yeah i think sometime around march april uh, hopefully yep. we'll have the m- amazing spring that we've had this year with, you know, days in the sixties and, you know, low seventies and stuff like that. Um, uh, it will be, I'd like to see it go three days. So I'd like to see a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, just because the amount of the material we'll have to cover. Yeah. Um, and, and again, it's, it's for people to bring their dogs out to, you know, the, the, the oh, yeah. clinics that I run normally, like the last two clinics that we ran, um, I encourage people to bring me their dogs. It it really does nobody any good if I'm standing up there with my versatile champion saying, this is how this works, and the dog (laughs) just knocks it out. You know what I mean? Nobody's covering hurdles there. Nobody's covering problems. Right. And so by us keeping it at a certain amount
0: of people that are coming, but everybody bringing their dogs, and we have four different stations, it's going to present an opportunity for each individual to get hands-on knowledge and advice from an experienced handler and you know over three days you should have plenty of time and you should leave there feeling a lot more confident and at the
1: very least more knowledgeable on each section of the test i would even say anybody that's even thinking about getting a bird dog this is because we're going to cover it we're going to cover from like almost like we did tonight like where you kind of need to start and then show you what an end goal should be Right. So, I mean, even if you don't even have your dog yet and you're on a waiting list or you're trying to do something and you, you know, want to kind of understand this whole thing better, yeah, come on out. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not going to hurt you by any means.
0: Absolutely. And so we'll have more details about this coming out as far as pricing, actual dates, so on, so forth. But, you know, if this is something that you're interested in, please reach out to us. You know, maybe we can start getting a little waiting list going. Yep. And then as we develop more, More information and details, we can put that out to you first. We do know that, you know, there's going to be a little kicker for the Patreon subscribers as opposed to, you know, just regular listeners. So uh, we haven't defined everything that goes into that. But, yeah, just shoot us an email, gundogityourself at at gmail.com. And if you're interested, let me know, and then we can kind of get some sort of little waiting list uh going and and i think it's going to be invaluable for a lot of people especially new beginners and then you know like we were talking about earlier even if you've been doing it for 30 years you can still learn so much from other people
1: Uh, i mean i just like we just talked about and i'm still learning new techniques every single day
2: hopefully we never stop learning you know so Scott, thanks for coming on, man. No problem. It's always a pleasure to be able to sit around and chew the fat with you for a good while.
1: No, it's not a problem at all, guys. I enjoyed it.
2: Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy this podcast and would like to contribute even more to future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gun dog yourself thanks again and happy hunting